This program was produced by and first broadcast on Radio Hawke's Bay, a community access media station. Thank you to New Zealand On Air for making this type of programming possible. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. You're listening to Radio Hawks Bay, your community access radio station, and I'm Lynn Trafford presenting Hawks Bay Scientists on Air on behalf of the Hawks Bay branch of the Royal Society, T.R. Parangi. This program is your opportunity to meet practicing and recently retired scientists from around the Bay. With me in the studio today is Jeremy Kidd, air quality scientist with the Hawke's Bay Regional Council and based at head office in Napier. Jeremy Kidd spent his formative years in Auckland, growing up with an interest in science of the natural world and doing well in such subjects at school. The University of Otago offered the subjects Jeremy wished to study and with Dunedin being far enough away from Auckland, made Otago doubly attractive. Upon leaving Otago, Jeremy's first employment was with Environment Southland and eventually he has ended up here in Hawke's Bay. We welcome Jeremy Kidd to Hawke's Bay Scientists on Air. Hello Jeremy. Hi Lynn. It's lovely to have you with us in the studio today. Now I've already said you were born in Auckland. Whereabouts did you do your schooling? Where did you go to primary and intermediate? I went to primary and intermediate school at St Kentigan School down on Shore Road. Um, yeah. And your and secondary school? Secondary school was at Auckland Grammar School. Auckland Grammar. Now, I've already said that you had an interest in science while you were a young person growing up. Was there anything particular that you thought, oh, that's really interesting, I'd quite like to do that? Uh, probably not specifically when I was a child, but just certainly really interested in nature documentaries and just being out in nature. And I guess we had a lot of time out in the Hauraki Gulf growing up, so it was really nice to be out there. It is, isn't it? It's like a laboratory right on the back doorstep mm, and exactly. beautiful with it. Yeah, yeah. And you did well at school in scientific subjects? Yeah, I did. Probably geography was um, my ah, best subject. that was subject. your best one? I think, yeah, I think so. Yeah, sometimes the subjects at school are determined by the teacher who teaches mm. that subject. Was it like that for you? Yeah, I had some. I did have some really good teachers, geography teachers, and also I think it was just being interested in the subject as well. You know, so if something wasn't so interesting, I wasn't really that applied sometimes. Yeah, but, as a, at a young person yeah. at school, we only like the ones we like, don't we? So <laughs> exactly. Speak, we do do that. It comes a time when you have to make a decision what you're going to do for your tertiary study. You chose to go to Otago in 2010. Now, I've alluded to that in my introduction, but why, why really did you choose Otago? I chose, I mean, I, part of it I don't really know. I just sort of... I guess felt like it was the place that I wanted to go. I actually went to a careers advisor in my last year of school and they um, advised me to go to Christchurch University and do geography there. And so I did apply there and then was sort of, I don't know, just thinking about it and I guess I realised I want to go to Otago. 
maybe there were some friends there that I wanted to... And it's a fun university. Yeah. It has that reputation, doesn't it? But exactly. Canterbury does not quite have the mm. same kind of fun. I'm sure they'd have just as much fun. <laughs> I'm sure they do. I'm sure they do. They just don't get on TV mm. as often for taking their sofas along to watch cricket <laughs> exactly. matches. All right, so off you go to Canterbury. What are you studying? What's the degree to be? So I, in my first year, I picked the papers that were the prerequisites for majors in geography, geology, and ecology. BSc. Yep, and a, a Bachelor of Science. Okay. And so I picked those so then I could see what I liked the best and then decide which to sort of, strike, you know, go which direction I would go in. And you chose geography. I did choose geography. Was there some practical work that you were doing during those three years that you do the undergrad? Was there something there that you thought, oh, I really have made the right decision? Was there something that came right for you that gave you that little tick of confidence? I think so. I think all the all the practical um, things, the field trips, and it was just so interesting, you know, being out there and learning about all the you know, the rivers and the climate and, you know, everything else, the coastal areas that we learn about. Did you go up into the mountains at all? We did. We did. We did a, um, a field week in second year for geography and we spent a week. Uh, we stayed at a campsite in Lake Rotanifa and so we were up around there in the rivers and we went up to the the glacial terminus lake of from Tasman Glacier. So it was, we were up in the mountains there and that was really... It was really cool. And spectacular. Yeah, it's spectacular up there. And you think, well, I'm studying, you know, I might work in this in the future. Yeah. yeah this is definitely the right place. Yeah, yeah. Just a stunning environment to go and visit. You finished the BSc and you decided to stay on. Mm. Now, was it your choice or did you have a tutor that came along and said, hey, we think you should carry on and we've got this wonderful task for you to do. How did it happen for you? I think it was more my choice. Your choice? I remember, yeah, I remember graduating with a Bachelor of Science and thinking, how am I going to differentiate myself from the 400-odd other people who also are graduating just today with a Bachelor of Science? It didn't seem like I there was nothing sort of separating me from everybody else. I wanted to do more. All right. So what did you choose to study? What was the topic that you chose to study and why pick that one? I was interested in sort of climate sciences and so I talked to the two um, lecturers at Otago who were involved in the climatology space and just talked about what potential projects they might have, you know, for a master's project and ended up settling on one with um, Dr Daniel Kingston. And the the title of the, the project was Investigating the Influence of Large-Scale Atmospheric Circulation on the Development of Drought in New Zealand, All right. which is quite a mouthful. <laughs> it is a mouthful, but actually tagging on in New Zealand at the mm. end of it also makes your study area quite large, doesn't mm. it? It does. So what did you have to do for your practical research to, to come up with enough data and data analysis to be awarded this degree? So Daniel, he had a, a data set that he would get that was, so there wasn't any practical collection of the data where we were using existing data okay. that we could have on the sort of, I can't remember how big the grid cells, but basically split up New Zealand area into grid cells and that has the associated data with that of a, of a drought index. Yes, 
And what was the major conclusion? I'm sure there were lots of conclusions, but if, if you get to sum it up and say, well, actually, we proved that, what was it? Uh, I think it's that's, that's quite hard to say, especially right. in this, in that it was, it's a very complex picture of, we all, you might hear about, you know, La Nina and El Nino and we that do, Southern Oscillation <laughs> and other things that all affect the climate. And so I guess it was a lot of learning about how different modes of those would affect the different, um, you know, development of different drought events, really. So I wouldn't, I, I don't know if I could even put a sentence right. together. All right. I won't ask you that then. That's a bad question. We, <laughs> we won't right. ask that question. We won't ask that question. When you do these studies at master level or at PhD level, sometimes there seems to be almost a complete lack of application to mm. practical work that's going on out there in the New Zealand world. You left university to go to Environment Southland in 2015. Were you able in any way to apply your learning to the job that you had at Environment Southland, or was that to come perhaps later on in life? I think that was more for later on. Okay. All right, well, we'll talk to that when we get to your job at Hawke's Bay then. Let's talk about what happened at Environment Southland. I think a first job when you leave the practical or the theoretical world of a university and you get out into the real life proper world, that first job needs to provide you with a good foundation block. Mm. Did Environment Southland do that? Definitely. What did they have you doing? So we were doing, it was a field-based job, so we were doing data collection for the science team at the council there for hydrology, so water quality, water quantity, um, freshwater ecology, there was air quality in there, there was soil stuff as well. So it was a very broad um, spectrum of of different um, disciplines within the environmental science sort of banner. Let's just take a second here, Jeremy, to explain how big Environment Southland is, because it's quite a large chunk of the lower part of New Zealand, isn't it? What does that region cover? Whereabouts so, are we? Yeah, well, it's it is fair, it's the largest region by area in terms of the regional council sort of territories, and all the way from sort of if you're Curio Bay in the Catlins across all the way to the southwestern corner of Fiordland and up past Milford Sound and sort of, sort of cuts across New Zealand to almost near in the ranges south of Roxburgh and then I guess cuts across south of Belclutha. I guess when you're driving over the they call the presidential highway between <laughs> Clinton and Gore, you cross over the Southland um, Otago boundary. Okay, it is a huge chunk. Yeah, isn't it's it? a huge well, area. And if you think about it, that's a massive coastline as well, with all yeah. the ins and outs of of, of the Lower South Island. It's a very big area. Did your field work cover all of that area, or were you allocated a particular piece? No, we sort of went all over. I mean, there wasn't too much to do in sort of Fiordland, as that was sort of this great wilderness that wasn't really touched too much by, by um, you know, humanity. So it was mostly within the, the areas that are inhabited. But yeah, definitely, I've been all over Southland, There's which a lot was of a really water down there, mm, yeah. isn't there? Really, you you briefly Some... said rivers and lakes, but oh my goodness, rivers and lakes—it's a huge amount of water. Yeah, big rivers, and before. 
before they dammed the Waiau River, that would have been the biggest river by volume in New Zealand. Yeah, we, we because we live up here and we're such a long way away from it, mm. you don't tend to think of it in those practical ways, do you really? Yeah. Until you've worked in it like exactly, you did. Exactly. And then you just know exactly what it is. You you were there for a, a goodly chunk for a first job, I suppose, from 2015 to 2018. Was there a particular highlight for you? Um I think I think just the field the field the places you went on the field work. It's really Southland's a really spectacular region. Something which I hadn't really explored at all. And I think, you know, places like Invercargill get a bit of a bad name. But um yeah, really enjoyed yeah, I just the great outdoors of Southland. Yeah. Absolutely beautiful. All right, you finish up your job there and you skive off overseas. So you do a few months away in Southeast Asia, mm. but then you end up in the UK with a two-year work visa to work in the UK. I'm interested to hear the job that you were doing for Wood because it's very unusual to me. And I'm talking about the Heathrow Airport job. Yes. What, what were you doing at Heathrow? So I was hired as an environmental technician to do groundwater and ground gas monitoring for this project. And the project was to build a new runway at Heathrow Airport, which is a very, very busy airport with not actually not a lot of runways compared to most of the other... And surrounded by housing. Yeah, yeah. And it's really right in the middle of everything, isn't it? Mm, There's not a lot is. of cow paddocks around Heathrow. Yeah. So how was this ever going to work, Jeremy? Well, the residents were all getting sort of would-be compulsory buyouts and things, and so it was like somewhat controversial for the people who were living there who, of course, don't want to be kicked out of their homes. But that's the, I guess, if you want to do you know, expand these resources and these places, you've got to do that. And that was something that they had decided they wanted to do. I guess some of them being council slash government in the UK. Well, they need more air traffic mm. facilities, didn't they? Not not just at Heathrow, but other airports as well. Never came about. What happened? No. So there was there was a high court case where environmental groups were lobbying against um, the Heathrow project, saying that it's not you can't do this because of the Paris Climate Agreement promises that the government's made in the, in the Paris Climate Summit. And so the High Court eventually ruled in favour of the environmental groups and they shut down the project. It's quite. I think that's quite amazing mm. that the, the, the little man, if you like, actually won over the huge administrative body that sat above all this trying to get that airport runway through I, I find amazing that they were not able to continue on with the project yeah. not being able to continue on with the project put you out of work didn't it yes it was very it was it was quite shocking it was sort of all of a sudden the decision came out and then they were like well you know we'll let you know what happens I didn't know whether there was going to be an appeal or whatever but yeah, basically, I was just on a contract for that project, and so when the project finished, they were like, "You've you've finished." And then that was also, I fit in my last day was on the day that we then went into lockdown for the coronavirus pandemic. So it was I know. it's a great excitement very, for you, really. Yeah, you're over in the UK. You could have had the opportunity to maybe come home. You didn't, though, did you? What did you end up doing? No, so I thought I thought I'd stay on. You know, I've got this two-year visa. I may as well 
stay on and see see how things pan out. I mean, it was all the great unknown at that point. We didn't know how long things were going to last. So, yeah, I thought it'll get better and um, stayed on and managed to find a job as a gardener after about six weeks of unemployment and the, <laughs> the coronavirus lockdown and ended up doing that for just over a year until I came home. Would not have done any harm, I wouldn't have thought, with the sort of degree that you had and the practical experience that you had done in Environment Southland. I would have thought being a gardener might have actually sat comfortably. Did it? Yeah, I did enjoy the work. And it is, you know, it's nice being outside and doing those things. And it's handy to have knowledge for and to apply to some of the Sometimes, <laughs> some of the aspects of the job. However, there comes a time when your two-year visa is actually up and it mm. is time to come back. You came back in July 2021 and you went into isolation in Hamilton. Yes. The a MIQ. good opportunity to start applying for jobs. Yes, plenty of time when you're in MIQ with absolutely nothing to do. <laughs> You can start applying for jobs, I like that. You ended up being offered a job with the Hawke's Bay Regional Council here in Napier. What job did they offer you? So they offered me the job of air quality scientist that I'm in right now. Can you describe what you mean by that? What does that job title actually mean? A scientist who is, I guess, involved in the analysis of air quality data that we collect for the region of Hawke's Bay. So across the whole region, looking at levels of air pollutants and I guess um, comparing them to relevant standards and guidelines that are in place. All right, let's just stop here and have a little look at what we mean by the regional council area. I guess Mm. you described earlier on what environment Southland look like. What does the Hawke's Bay Regional Council's area look like? From where to where? Up north of Wairau, between Wairau and Gisborne, all the way down south to, I guess when you go past Waipokorau and things, there's a... Yeah, round about there. Yeah, I'm not Mm. sure exactly where the line is there. No, I'm not sure 100% Mm. either, but in that area there... Yeah, before you get to Dannyburg. Before you get to (laughs) Dannyburg, quite right, before you get to Dannyburg. Yeah, and then sort of on the hills east of here, you know, in the Kaweka and the Rohini's. Yes, we take in those beautiful hills. Mm. We do indeed. All right, so that's what our region looks like. Let's talk about the air quality that's centred around where people are living as opposed to where people are not greatly populated. Do you do both or are you just testing in the cities, so to speak? In the cities, so to speak, because the air quality, that's sort of the difference between air quality and most of the most of the other environmental science disciplines or the environmental science that we collect at the council, is that air quality is mainly collected for a human health perspective. Okay. All right. Do, do we do nothing up in the hills or nothing in remote areas? We don't test anything in those areas. Not for air quality. No. Is that simply because we maybe haven't got the manpower to deal with that? Or is it because we consider the air quality to be good in those areas? I would think, well, partly both, but definitely the latter. I mean... We keep an eye on all the sort of the sources of emissions that we have, and there's not, you know, a huge amount out where known people are really, because it's a lot of it's just 
taking um, taking into account the anthropogenic or human-made emissions. All right, let's come back close to home now and look at Napier and Hastings and the light industrial areas that mm. sit alongside of our towns. Is there a difference between Napier and Hastings and our light industry, or are we much of a muchness? No, there's definitely a difference. What's the difference? And the difference comes with sources of emissions and then also the way that where they are geographically um, sort of interacts with the meteorology. You mean with Napier being by the sea and Hastings not being by the sea. What difference does that make, Jeremy? So you get a bit of the, well, the temperature doesn't go, you don't get quite such a frost in Napier, if you notice, especially if you're right by the sea. The sea acts as sort of like a temperature buffer where it doesn't get as cold or as hot and you're more likely to get a stronger frost and a temperature inversion in Hastings, which is conducive to the collection of the atmospheric, of the pollution. All right. Now, because it's colder Mm. in Hastings, does that mean that we as residents maybe light more fires? Possibly. I mean, it's it's usually only one or two degrees, but certainly... It feels different, Mm. doesn't it, sometimes? If I'm coming across to Hastings from Napier early in the morning, it's definitely nippy in Hastings. So are we, as residents, not very good to our air quality in winter? No, I don't think that's a way to look at it. The the way the rules have been set for the last sort of 15 years is that if you want to have a wood burner, you'd have to upgrade it to make sure it's compliant. And that's through those rules actually have um, made a market increase or decrease in the amount of pollutants in the air. So an increase in air quality. So we're being better in yes. how we how we do this. What about the light industry? What sort of pollutants are they putting into the air that we as residents are not? That's yeah, the things coming from the industry there. A lot of smells. There's people get odor complaints out at Awatoto. And also things like sulphur dioxide and fluoride come out of places like um, the Ravenstown Fertiliser Works. Okay. And do we do we get really upset about that as residents? Do people complain to you? People complain about the odour. And, I mean, you've, it's been in the newspaper recently as well, odour complaints are with Toto. But I think people know out there, if you live by those places, they are aware of of the things that are coming out of there. And, and I guess it's a, it's does a choice. Does it blow away because it's by the sea? Does it blow away or does it hover over the land? Uh, well, it depends on the wind direction, the wind speed really, but it, if it is offshore, it will it will blow away. It will blow away. Mm. All right. What are we doing by way of monitoring that gives us a good trend analysis as to how things have changed maybe since you started monitoring? I don't know when you started monitoring. Mm. There's the question, I guess. When did we start monitoring? About 2006. 2006. So not even quite 20 years yet. So in that time, have you got enough of a trend analysis to see what is changing? Yes, because in, in Napier and Hastings, 2006 was the PM10 monitoring has started. And so we have the data from there is quite clear as to how that has come down over the years. So what are we doing that's good? 
Well, that was the the people buying or replacing their old fires with more compliant fires yes, and encouraging. I, I know. I personally did that. Exactly. Uh, there was pressure on us to mm. well to try and stop burning wood, and if we were going to do it, to do it in a more ecologically friendly way. Exactly. So we're continuing to do this. Yes. Yeah. All right. So, how do you think the future bodes for what's going on in our region? I think it will look good as we continue to push for increases in air quality. There are new, there's always new guidelines and new sort of goalposts to achieve that come out, especially from the World Health Organization. So, you know, in the future we may have to get even more strict on those things, but I mean, it's only going to result in better outcomes for our health. So, you're giving us a tick? Yes. You're giving us a tick. Good. Thank you, Jeremy Kidd, air quality scientist at the Hawke's Bay Regional Council in Napier. Thank you for being my guest on Hawke's Bay Scientists on Air. If you have not looked at the University of Otago website of recent times, hit Google and refresh your knowledge of what they are up to down there. There are campuses in Dunedin, Auckland, Christchurch, Invercargill and Wellington, and courses on offer vary according to the campus. There are also options for distance learning. New Zealand's regional councils have extensive websites covering all aspects of their scientific research, data collection and analysis. There is much to be gained by spending time online. Similarly, the Hawke's Bay branch of the Royal Society publishes the monthly lecture programme online. Hit Google. Please join me every Monday morning at 9.30 to meet another practising or recently retired scientist from around the Bay. I'm Lynn Trafford. And there may be many others, but they haven't been discovered. This program was produced by and first broadcast on Radio Hawke's Bay, a community access media station. Thank you to New Zealand On Air for making this type of programming possible.